Welcome to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. So glad that you're joining me again today. I hope you're having a good week. We've got a lot of rain here in Texas lately, and that's been pretty unusual, but I know we'll be glad for it come the hot summers we always have. Our lakes will be good and full, so hope you're doing well where you are and you're part of the country. We are studying the book of Revelation together, so I hope you have been able to join us already in this study, but if not, we're glad to have you joining us today. We are going through a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter of this wonderful, climactic book of the Bible known as the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 11, so you can take your Bible, whether it's on your phone or hard copy, whatever you have. We hope you'll join us. Uh, We have been doing this study for several months now, actually uh, started it before the holiday season of last year, just a few months ago, and uh, we're uh, about halfway through. Uh, the book, but it's a tremendous study. I've been trying to give it a kind of a middle-of-the-road approach, not so deep and so um, uh, detailed that we can't get through it in a certain amount of time, but not just a peripheral surface level either. We want to give you enough that you can kind of sink your teeth into and digest a bit. So um, we've come now to chapter 11, and we're presenting uh, this section of the book of Revelation, which is really the meat uh, of the whole book, the body of the book of Revelation is chapters 4 through 18. Um, this is where you find the various judgments that are described. Uh, there's three sets of seven judgments that I've been referring to quite a bit. I hope you can go back and listen to the previous episodes. If you haven't been able to do that already, already that'll help you catch up and kind of be up to date on our study. But God has sent now up to this point uh, the seven seal judgments in chapter uh, 6 uh, and chapter uh, 8, where they continue, I believe it is. Uh, yes, in chapter 8, the seventh seal. Then we uh, began to look at the seven trumpet judgments. We've covered six of those already through chapter 9, but then there was an aside, a, a bit of a parenthetical, and this is typical of the book of Revelation. It happens quite a bit. Uh, it'll be on one thought for a while or one uh, event, and then it'll change pace and go back. Often it's from what's happening on earth to what's happening in heaven. John, the apostle, the old man banished on the Isle of Patmos, has been given this revelation by God, and he's shown these things by many of God's servants, the angels, uh, and we see him writing these things down, which becomes the inspired book that we are now reading and studying. Now, we uh, uh, studied chapter 10 about the little book and, 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 and John's uh, discussion with who we believe is Christ, a mighty angel of chapter 10, verse 1. And then we got into chapter 11, which is such a fascinating, intriguing chapter about these two witnesses primarily. And that's where we left off last week. We introduced the two witnesses in verses 3 through 6. It doesn't name them, and so I'm not going to be dogmatic, neither can anybody else, but uh, most commentators, conservative prophecy scholars, teachers of the book of Revelation, uh, agree that it's probably Moses and Elijah by the description given. And before I get back into the text, beginning in verse 7, I wanted to remind you of the of the really important uh, truth about why these two witnesses are sent down by God. We know they are sent down by God, and we know they're very unique. 
because they are called in verse 4, the two olive trees and the two candlesticks that stood before the God of the earth. That means they were in heaven. They're referred to in Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 4, verses 3 and 14. I referred to you last week to that passage. So we know they were in heaven, but they're sent down. And the description in verses 5 and 6 apparently uh, pictures perfectly Moses and Elijah, the same two men that appeared with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, but what I ended with last week, I want to start with this week, is to remind you why they were sent down. If the rapture happens before the seven-year tribulation, which I believe it does, that's how I believe the Bible consistently teaches uh, the comings of Christ, first in the rapture for his saints, and then after the tribulation period with his saints to set up his kingdom. That's the most literal, consistent uh, position, I think, prophetically in Scripture. Now, can anyone in any position on prophecy answer every question, dot every I, cross every T? No. No one can, and so no one should even claim they can, okay? But I believe consistently, as you study the passages, uh, is there hard verses to put into a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial uh, mindset? Yes, there are. Uh, but I believe there's even more if we go to another position that I don't think is as consistent as the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, literal view of prophecy. So with that in mind, uh, Jesus takes us all in the rapture, all the saved. So who's going to be left on earth to witness to those who go into the tribulation period? There's no Christians, there's no witness, but the Bible teaches God has never left himself without witness. He's always had a witness uh, for the gospel and for the truth. As long as there's been sinners on the earth, there's never been a time that God has left them without the ability to know the truth, without a witness. Of course, there's always the witness of his creation. There's always the witness of conscience. But we're talking about a verbal and lifestyle witness, if you will, the testimony of people. There's a great verse, by the way, that backs that up. I always love to go to it in Acts 14, where Paul and Barnabas are preaching at uh, Lyconia and Lystra and these places. And I'll just jump into what Paul says. I love this. Um, he speaks about how God in verse 16, this is Acts 14, verse 16, uh, says, who in time past suffered or allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. This is God's mercy on sinful man for not judging us immediately for what we deserve. But then here's the statement that just really jumps off the page to me. Nevertheless, he, God, left not himself without witness. That's been the truth throughout all of human history. So back to the tribulation. Once all Christians are caught up in the rapture, if it is pre-tribulational as I believe it is, who's going to be the witness to those who go into the tribulation lost? We already have discussed and studied that there will be uh, a multitude of people saved during the tribulation. I believe it's those who have not heard the gospel and had a clear opportunity, a, a, a real opportunity to be saved. And I think God in his mercy and grace will allow them the opportunity to hear the gospel, but who are they going to hear it from? Remember what Romans 10 said? It's a great missionary passage. Let me go back to it too. Maybe it, it's a good to connect it right here where Paul says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? See, it's God's will. And how shall they preach except they be sent? Uh, Romans 10, 14, 
part of verse 15. So what I'm saying is, I think these two witnesses are so pivotal, so important, because there's no one else to witness at the beginning of the tribulation period after all believers are taken out of the world. So this fits, I think, perfectly into a scenario that says these two men, probably Moses and Elijah, will be the great witnesses during that time. Well, uh, here's here's how we know. Now, let me get into the passage now where we pick up our, our text reading, and you'll, you'll see uh, what they've been doing uh, really more by the reaction of the unsaved, wicked world, the Antichrist and his people. You're going to see their reaction to the ministry of these two men to know that they uh, have been preaching and winning many people and being very successful. By the way, I could bring up verse 3 to show you that that's the very reason they were sent down. Verse 3 said, And I will give power unto my two, what? Witnesses. A witness simply tells what he or she knows and, and has seen, has heard and seen, and they shall prophesy, which means to preach, a thousand two hundred and threescore days. I think that's, again, three and a half years, the first half of the tribulation period, I believe. Well, let's go ahead and continue. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10 now as we pick up in the text. And when they shall have finished their testimony, their preaching, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit, that's the Antichrist, shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer or allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Now let's stop there. So here uh, we see the climax of their ministry where they're martyred. Both of these men are put to death. That means they must have come back in physical bodies that were in some way mortal to be able to be killed. Uh, some people say, well, how could Moses and Elijah be that if they were already in heaven? I, I'm not going to be able to explain all of that. I'm going to tell you that these are very unusual men anyway, uh, considering the things they do in verses 5 and 6. So God, for some reason, allows them to take on human flesh, mortal flesh again, uh, and, and have their ministry to preach. And, and that's kind of uh, typical and common of God to do that because all through history, uh, God has used uh, men to be the main source of his witness to the world. Now, it's not that he hasn't witnessed in other ways. We'll see later in chapter 14 a great passage about two angels that come and preach the everlasting gospel to the earth. That's going to be fantastic. But very, very out of the ordinary. God usually uses men. So maybe that's why he chose to have Moses and Elijah come back in mortal flesh to preach. Well, we know they preach for three and a half years, okay? we are, The text is very clear on that. But it says, and when they have finished their testimony, their preaching, their ministry, keep that in mind. People, you and I, if you're saved listening to this podcast, let me remind you of a great truth. We never need to let this uh, slip from us. We need to remember this at all times. We are immortal until God is done with us. That means no matter how bad it seems, no matter how bad it gets, until God is done with our ministry, God protects us. We are immortal. We cannot be killed. However, on the other hand, as soon as our work is done, it says 
their testimony was finished. God's going to take you right then. You won't live another minute past your time. And I believe that in God's providence, that's true. Well, these these two men preach three and a half years. They have great success, we know. I think their primary fruit of their ministry is the 144,000 I discussed last week. I think they will be the main people that get saved by the preaching of these two. We'll pick up their story again in chapter 14 uh, and a few chapters ahead. I think there's other people get saved, perhaps, uh, I believe, along with those 144,000, but they'll kind of be the main witnesses after these two men uh, leave the earth. So they'll pick up where these two men uh, started. Now, look who kills them, the beast, this wicked antichrist. We've been referring to him, and he hasn't really been a main subject yet. He will be. He will really take front and center stage in ver- or chapter 13 as he and his cohort, his uh, compadre, the false prophet, shall be discussed in great detail. All of chapter 13 will be about the beast and the false prophet. But it says the beast here, who ascendeth out of the bottomless pit. Uh, this is a very intriguing, kind of mysterious statement because we always wonder who is the Antichrist. And I'm going to hold back my more full discussion on that till we get to the passage more about him and the false prophet. But uh, we believe he's a mortal man that the devil uh, incarnates. He'll be the Antichrist, the exact opposite of the true Christ. As Jesus was the incarnation of God and is God in human flesh, the Antichrist, the beast, will be the incarnation of Satan. And so this spirit that ascends out of the bottomless pit, this beast, is none other than the devil uh, or another demon. Uh, here, here we kind of mince words here. We're not sure. The devil is only one being. He can't be two beings. So it must be some other leading um, spirit out of the bottomless pit, a demonic spirit, maybe one of the very uh, close heads of all the different ones. Remember uh, Abaddon and Apollyon? We saw in chapter 9, verse 11. Uh, evidently, there's some ranking system of the uh, the power of the demons, and this one comes out of the bottomless pit, and he's associated with the beast. So we'll leave it at that till we pick up chapter 13. Now, here's what we want to see. He makes war against these two witnesses. He hates them. Of course he does, because they're preaching Jesus Christ. They're preaching redemption. They're preaching salvation which has always been preached since the beginning of time, that man could be saved from their sins by coming through the Messiah in repentance and faith in the Messiah's work, they could be reconciled to God. That's being saved, being justified, being redeemed, uh, being uh, born again. And so they're preaching that in the Antichrist who is demanding and will demand ultimate allegiance from people on earth during his reign which I think is the entire seven years, but the last half is worse than the first. Uh, He's going to demand that. So these guys are really throwing a wrench into his whole economy, his whole plans. So he kills them. And I think because of the fact that he kills them shows you that there is going to be a change in his uh, methods, methodology of ruling and reigning. I think the, the Antichrist reigns by peace and diplomacy at first, But as we come closer to the midpoint of the tribulation period, sometime thereabouts, I think this reveals his true, satanic, bloodthirsty, ruthless character. He kills these two men. For what? For doing nothing other than preaching Christ and seeing people saved. Well, then we're just amazed at what happens next. And there's no reason 
to take this any other way than literally, okay? And I'll show you why. There's something very interesting in the verse that is symbolic in the verse to show you that the rest of the verse should not be taken symbolically. Let me explain. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. Okay, so they die. Their ministry was in Jerusalem, we find out. This is Jerusalem. He says, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Wow. So they're killed by the Antichrist, and the Antichrist allows their bodies just to lay dead on the streets. We're going to see why in a moment, uh, where all the world sees their dead bodies in verse 9. We'll get to that. But back to Jerusalem in symbolic uh, uh, wording and symbolic typology here. It's not ever called Jerusalem in verse 8, but we know it is Jerusalem, mainly from the last phrase of the verse, where also our Lord was crucified. If we didn't have that statement, we might not know what this city was just by the Sodom and Egypt statements, but we know it's Jerusalem. Why would it be called Sodom and Egypt? Because by that time, and especially with its history, especially the history of that city, remember that city, Jerusalem, the beloved city of God, the city of peace that God created as his headquarters on earth, where he had his temple built and where he would dwell among his people. And it would be the capital of the holy nation of Israel. That nation and that city and their people rejected their Messiah. One of the most shocking, sad, and, 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 and hard passages to even read is when in Matthew 23, after he scolded the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. In, in such a heart for this city. He said, how often I would have gathered you as a, as a hen gathered her chicks, but ye would not. Uh, they would not come to Christ. They rejected their own Messiah. And then from that point on, and, and again, this is not an anti-Semitic thing at all. I love the Jews. Every true Christian loves Israel and prays for the peace of Jerusalem. We're just stating a fact. The Jewish people as a whole, not individually, many individual Jews have come to Christ. Thank God. There's Messianic Jews. There's uh, Jews that have come to believe on Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. But as a nation, as a people, how God looks at them as a national entity, they have rejected Christ as a Messiah. And that city of Jerusalem was trampled by the Romans. They were cast out of their homeland for 1,900 years nearly. And even today, that holy city is basically a secular city. Uh, there are some Christians there, thankfully, and there's some Orthodox Jews who are trying to, they, they believe, approach God the way they think they should. But for the most part, the, the nation or modern state of Israel is secular. One day they will turn to the Lord. We'll get to that. But I think that's why he calls them Sodom and Egypt. They both picture a wickedness. Egypt, for instance, it pictures the world. Uh, there's no doubt about that. When you go back from the earliest book of Genesis, especially into the story of the Exodus by Moses and, and the people of Israel, uh, Egypt pictures the world and how we're enslaved to the world by sin. We need to be delivered. And, and Moses was their deliverer, but he pictures Christ our deliverer. And of course, it was Joshua, not Moses, who took him into the promised land. Joshua, we know the Old Testament title, really means the exact same thing as the New Testament name Jesus, Yeshua, Savior, he that saves us from our sins. And so, anyway, Egypt's a picture of the world. Sodom, oh, what a disgraceful description. Sodom, 
that wicked city along with Gomorrah and the other three, there was five little cities around in the plain that it's where, where Lot went to dwell, remember? And the city was given over to all kinds of perversion, especially homosexuality. And, and in chapter 19 of Genesis, you can read it clearly. God strikes the perverted homosexual men with blindness who try to come and actually have uh, sexual relations with the two men angels that had come to Lot's home. It's a it's a sordid, illicit story. Uh, but imagine he calls that city that, Sodom and Egypt. That's how bad it was. Well, it was surely bad then because evidently the Antichrist has already taken over that city or at least uh, his presence is there because that's where he kills these two men. Now, we're not going to be dogmatic about the time. I'm not going to say that this is exactly at the midpoint of the tribulation. I think the wording fits into that, but you know that's that's not even that important. No matter when it is, we know the Antichrist kills them. They, they die. And I want you to see what happens after they die. This is just unbelievable nearly. The rest of the world that's unsaved, the wicked who've hated them, they rejoice. There's a great celebration. It's like Christmas all over again. This is the, this is the anti-Christmas, the anti-Christian Christmas, if you will, uh, where the Antichrist, uh, from, for killing these two men, he creates a great um, celebration around the world. Now notice this, and they are the people in kindreds and tongues all around the world shall see their dead bodies three days and a half. Isn't this telling? I can only say that it, it, it seems to me to correlate symbolically to the three and a half years they've been preaching. Maybe he did it on purpose for that long, but I don't think he did. I think it's really God who raises them up, we'll see in a minute. And in those three and a half days, God allows these two men, their bodies to lay in the streets of Jerusalem. He allows that because they picture, in a sense, the three and a half years that they've been preaching. Well, it says all the people see their dead bodies. By the way, this is a fascinating truth. I hope you catch this and didn't miss it. How can all the nations and kindreds and people and tongues see their dead bodies all at one time? It doesn't say just the people there. It says all the nations. How? Well, it's predicting for us the ability that when John wrote this was completely impossible. And in fact, it was impossible up until just about 30, 40 years ago. Uh, because of satellite communication today, we could see everything around the world live. We do it all the time. We're almost spoiled by it. We, don't, we, we just take it for granted. But this has been a brand new phenomenon. And the reason I say this is so important is it makes us realize that what we see happening in our world today fits perfectly into the possible scenario for these events to happen. When people like myself say that we believe we're in the last days and we believe Jesus is coming soon and then all these tribulation events and all the events that we've been seeing, most of which we've been studying in the book of Revelation, but they're found in other places. Um, the reason we, we're so excited that we think the end times are upon us is because of verses like this. There was no other time, even 30, 40 years ago, you could read verse 9 and say, how's all the world going to see their dead bodies at one time? It doesn't say they'll see them over a period of time. It just simply says, this is what the text says, all the nations shall see their dead bodies. And the fact that it keeps it in time frame of days, that their bodies stay three and a half days, and indicates that the seeing of their bodies is during that three and a half days, not later as the newscast maybe gets a picture of it and puts it in a newspaper or something. It seems to indicate that's the most uh, literal uh, 
basic interpretation of this text, the one that comes to you the quickest, is that people see their bodies as they lay there. And it's really the, the, the Antichrist does it on purpose. Look at this statement. It shall not suffer or allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. Uh, burial, of course, was always to honor the dead, to respect the dead. We bury our dead with respect. We have memorials and funerals and whatever. and We have cemeteries and we have funeral homes. And what do we do all that? And we take very delicate care of, of the bodies of the deceased because we, we love our dead. And, and what you, the body you lived in was your house. It was your tent. And we respect that. But not, not uh, the Antichrist here. Uh, he doesn't even allow their bodies to be buried. And notice the merriment they make. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them. Man, they just make a big party out of this. Uh, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. They're glad they're dead. And I have to say, and I've said it a couple of times already, so I'm repeating myself, but it fits in here perfectly. You know when the rapture happens and all believers are taken out of the earth, uh, don't think that the world is going to mourn and cry. And uh, Now, they'll be shocked. They'll be amazement. They'll be, they'll be wondering why or how it happened. But they, it won't last long. They'll be glad we're gone. I think the world's going to be happy that us pesty Christians who, who were a conviction, a, a convicting uh, testimony to the world by the way we live differently and, and found faith and hope that they don't have and joy that they don't know exists. Um, the world's going to rejoice when Christians are, are raptured. Uh, and right, like right here we see they rejoice when these two prophets are dead. Well, Let's finish this section about these two men. Uh, and I'm going to continue in verse 11. And after three days and a half, there it is at three and a half days, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now, the ending of this story is just amazing, is as amazing as the earlier parts of it. Because listen to what happens after these two men die and their bodies as disdain and in, in, in his hateful as that is, to let their bodies just lay there on the streets of Jerusalem. After three and a half days, the spirit of life from God. What a great statement. What a great title. This is the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's a life giver. He's a creator. He was the one that hovered over the waters. Let there be light. The spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and said, let there be light. And there was light. He's the one that regenerates us. It's the spirit that quickeneth. Every one of us that's, that's saved, we're made alive. Quicken means to be made alive by Christ, by his spirit. And so the spirit of God comes on these men and enters into them. Now, we can debate about where their soul and spirit went. We, we do believe that the Bible teaches anytime a person dies, their spirit and soul don't stay in their bodies. So if it was Moses and Elijah, if it was, doesn't matter, they, the spirit would have left their bodies. But now the spirit comes to give them life back into their bodies so that they will stand in those physical bodies. And they stood upon their feet. 
And here's the here's the kicker, and you know this is true. Imagine all the world. They're still looking at this evidence. There's still satellite TV. There's still cameramen and, and newscast people and everything. We can imagine all the major news uh, agencies of the world are, are recording this and, and all the partying that's going on. But I'll tell you, the party ends quick when they see these two men get up and stand up on their feet. And great fear fell upon them which saw them. Again, this has to be live. It has to be as it's going on. And so great fear. Can you imagine the shock? I can see these drunken people uh, uh, and all their partying and they're giving gifts and all this and uh, watching TV and maybe they're celebrating and dancing around and all their stuff and seeing these two men's body. Ah, they're singing songs of rejoicing that these two pesty preachers are dead. All of a sudden, they look to their TV or maybe their phones at that time. Everybody will have a phone, I'm sure. Uh, and they see these men get up. Man, you can imagine all the glasses dropping, all the bottles dropping, all the drugs dropping to the floor. Uh, and people are shocked. And great fear fell upon them which saw them. That's an understatement. And they heard a great voice. Now, this is, look at, the, and they. Now, the they is a tough one because... It's a pronoun, of course, and we're not sure who it modifies. Is the they just the two men, uh, possibly Moses and Elijah, that are resurrected and, and are going to go up in this cloud? I don't know. It could mean they, could mean all those that uh, are right around them and would hear it by the live camera work that's going on. I, I don't know. Uh, we're not going to say for sure we know. I just know this. I'm going to tie something into this in verse 13 that tells me that it very might, uh, very, very well might be that the people that hear this great voice are the same people that saw them get up, and that's everybody. So I'm going to kind of stay with that because I think it fits in. And they hear this voice saying, come up hither. Wow, come up hither. Where did we see that before? Remember the exact words in chapter 4 and verse 1 when John was told, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. I think that pictured the rapture. This at least pictures a kind of a, a rapture and an ascension all at the same time. This is an amazing thing. Now, they don't go up like the rapture, which is instantaneous in a twinkling of an eye, as Paul called the rapture. They don't go up like that. They go up more like Jesus ascending right before the very eyes of the people. It says they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, just like Jesus ascended on the Mount of Olives. In Acts chapter 1, same. So this is kind of a almost a rapture come up hither and an ascension all put together. These two men are so special. And look at this. And their enemies beheld them. Wow. God is so clear on this. I mean, it's so uh, deafening when you think about the idea of people seeing and hearing this voice, watching with their own eyes these men ascending. Well, then it says this. This is kind of a, I, I don't know exactly where to fit this in, but apparently it happens right here. I don't think it goes along with anything else. Uh, we will see a great earthquake at the end of the tribulation, I think, and we know when Jesus comes back and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives in his return, there's a great earthquake. I don't think that's the great earthquake here, though. Here's why. It says in the same hour. Now, that's not, it can't be the same hour when Jesus actually returns, so it has to be right there when this thing happened. After these men are out of sight, and evidently back in heaven, or at least out of the sight of the people, at God, I think in his great wrath, God is just, he's so angry with the, with the beast and his wicked followers for rejoicing after killing these, 
these two men. I tell you, God loves the martyrs. I love studying about the martyrs. Friend, if you realized how many millions upon millions, I say millions, plural, have died. Perhaps it could be even in the in the B billion. I don't know. I'm just going to say a lot have. We have records of many of them. And I'm telling you, God loves the martyrs. Those who are willing to give their lives, God has a special place for them, a special love for them. And it's like after he did this amazing thing to resurrect them and to send them in the view of the people, then he says, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to punish those who killed them. And he sends this earthquake. And notice a tenth part of the city fell. The city would be Jerusalem. A tenth part of the city just drops off. Now, it's pretty telling. That's that's The topography of that statement is perfectly in line with what the city's like. Jerusalem is basically built on three hills, we know. So a part of that city is maybe one of those hills. A tenth of a, a part of that city off one of those hills, evidently, is just going to collapse. And probably it's a part of the city that has many people living in houses and maybe businesses or whatever because it says... 7,000 die. Well, we see earthquakes, hear earthquakes all the time. There was a terrible earthquake you and I know just recently in Turkey and Syria on the border area there. Last I read in a news feed recently, over 50,000 people died in that terrible earthquake. I hope you prayed and sent some help if you could. Uh, we did here at our church, um, and we prayed for them too. But imagine... 7,000 die immediately from this earthquake. I don't know who they are, but I'll tell you what, they were among the partiers that were glad to see these two men killed. But see, the Bible says, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. When, when you sow, which means you, you, you commit these deeds, it's going to come around, you're going to pay a price for it. You're going to answer for your actions. And so 7,000 die. Now listen to this statement. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, um, I have to believe that that's either, there's two possibilities of who that could be. Okay, I'm not going to be sure or dogmatic on that. I would say it's got to represent the save, of course, those who have been saved and will be saved during that tribulation. They're going to see it because imagine the feeling they had. They must have saw their, their two heroes, these two men die. Man, I bet there was heartbreak. Oh, even though most all the world is unsaved, rejoiced at the death of these two men, the saved Remnant, he calls it. A remnant's a, a little group out of the hole. A remnant of believers that are, li- that are alive. They, no doubt, were greatly upset uh, at seeing their two men, these two witnesses, die. But now when they see what God did, not only in raising them up and ascending them in the, in the, before the view of all the world, but also sending this earthquake, they were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. I think that could mean simply they were amazed at seeing what their great God has done. But another possible definition could be, uh, interpretation could be this remnant could also uh, really just speak of a remnant of non-Christian people still on the earth that do get saved through this event. I think that's a possible interpretation for sure. Hey, if you saw what they just saw, not only these men resurrected then ascended up and this earthquake come and kill 7,000 people in one shot, uh, more that would cause a lot of people to believe. And I think some of them may have been saved through this and gave glory to God. Well, let me close our study. Now, verse 14 will lead us into the last trumpet judgment that has not yet happened. He said, the second woe is past. And this takes us back really to verse 13 of chapter 9 where we had the sixth trumpet because that was 
that stopped the trumpet judgments. We left off there. We're going to pick up next time in verse 15 to see the seventh and final of these seven trumpets. But that won't be all. There'll be one more set of seven coming up. Well, I appreciate you listening. God bless you. Remember our motto, conviction for truth, compassion for people.